as has already been mentioned, what a joyful opportunity we each have on this evening to come together, as Brother Lester made mention of earlier, as well as the recognition of the great blessings that we've each enjoyed today. To our sick list, we may well know we have certainly some things to be thankful for. Some who are sick are able to be back with us tonight. And also to that sick list, I might add uh, our daughter Deanna. She, we discovered this afternoon she does indeed have the flu, so I'd appreciate you continue to pray on her behalf. Denise is tending to her even at this point. Maybe she'll be able to join us here in a little while. As we think about all of that, though, I might turn your attention to a text that was read in our hearing a moment ago taken from the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua, nestled near the beginning of the Old Testament. Interesting indeed as one remembers some of the things to be found in that text, and we will extract just a, a certain set of its lessons. But as you can see, based on what I have at my left, the title, Sin in the Camp, and of course the interesting part, National Accountability. I believe we'll see as we study some of the aspects of this that there's a part of it that's not terribly comfortable, but nonetheless what we need to hear because it's what God has said. Might I direct your attention along that line to the screen on my left as part of an introduction. Each of us would well say that the scriptures easily teach that there is a strong element of accountability. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, as we've been studying on Sunday morning, though Adam and Eve alike both attempted to cast the blame elsewhere, God would have none of it. They were held accountable for the fact that they had violated the will of God, they had sinned, and they were guilty. But we also know that even in families, God holds us to responsibilities. Did he not say in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so we as families, especially parents, have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility toward that end. But what about the church? God has given responsibility to the church in regard to duties that it's to perform. It must remain pure. For that reason, we're given commandment to withdraw fellowship from those that walk disorderly, 2 Thessalonians 3, as well as to appreciate that that purity is a strong and powerful element that must always be maintained. But as you can see, fourthly, we must not forget nations, for God also holds nations accountable. They are accountable for utilizing those blessings that they're given and for maintaining a tie to godliness and right living. And if they choose to forsake that, let us see tonight what may happen. What are some things that God may allow to come on a nation if they forsake that responsibility? Of course, you and I are citizens of the United States of America. We are members of a nation. And so this certainly is a lesson that is of interest to you and me. As we turn back the clock to ancient Israel, begin to look with me at one of the elements that occurred when there was sin in the camp. Sin in the camp. As we begin that lesson, let's first retrace a part of their history, for that will be important as we move forward to extract the lessons here from Joshua 7. We remember that this people were the very ones who were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. They had gone into Egypt in a peaceful way, there to escape the famine that had come into the land in Genesis 46. However, as there arose a king that knew not Joseph, we learn in Exodus 1 verse 8 that they soon were placed under subjection 
They were made slaves to the people of Egypt. It wasn't very long before they cried, the Israelites did, to God for deliverance, Exodus 2, 23-25. And as they made that cry, the text says God heard their cries and their groanings, and he initiated the sending of Moses. As Moses thus came, we remember that ten plagues in essence were brought upon the Egyptians and with a mighty hand they left Egyptian bondage. And when they crossed the Red Sea and their pursuers, the Egyptians, were drowned therein, finally Israel was free from Egypt. Finally they were able to in liberty to pursue the mission and purpose which God had given them. But all that being said, we remember that Following that crossing of the following that crossing of the Red Sea, they were headed toward a promised land. They were headed toward Canaan, and as they wandered through that wilderness, hanging before them was the hope and the desire of this land flowing with milk and honey, a land where their physical needs would be met in abundance, a land where they could know their God and their relationship with Him would be complete in every way. As they longed for that land. We quickly remember that Moses died at one point, and the hand-picked successor by God himself was Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 3, this people crossed the Jordan River, and into the promised land they went. Finally, they were there. We can easily see that God was with them at that time, because that great city of Jericho was conquered with no trouble. In fact, it had to be one of the most unorthodox military expeditions in history. With Joshua as their leader, God gave them orders to march around the city one time a day for six days. And on the seventh day, he said, you march around it seven times, and at the conclusion thereof, the priests are to blow their trumpets, and the people are to shout, and the walls of the city will fall. The people did what God said. They marched around the city those 13 times as God commanded. And in the finality, at the conclusion thereof, when the tr trumpets were blown, the people therein shouted, and the walls fell, just like God said they would. And the people with haste rushed into the city and conquered it. We can see that this great and mighty and defensed city was no terrible thing for Egypt to conquer, or for Israel to conquer. It wasn't difficult at all. However, that sets the stage for what we are to see, because God had given orders with respect to that city. The spoils of Jericho were not to be placed amongst the people's own stuff. It was not to be taken for personal privilege. Rather, it was to be placed in the treasury of the Lord. However, as Joshua chapter 7 opens, we notice the next major battle was the little city of Ai. In fact, as we read the opening five verses of that chapter, we easily understand that Ai was tiny compared to Jericho. In fact, so small was it that those who had the ability to counsel and to give advice to Joshua said, there's not even a need to send the whole camp. You only need two or 3,000 men for Ai is a small city. There really will be no trouble. There will really be little difficulty at all in the conquering of Ai. However, as the people proceeded to engage the fight, we find something dramatic. For Israel was put to flight and 36 Israelites were slain. In the aftermath of that, Israel was dumbfounded. How could we have beaten Jericho so easily and now we have fallen prey to this tiny little town of Ai? 
Joshua was beside himself. He didn't know what to say. He couldn't explain it. He fell before the Lord, the text says, and pleaded and prayed with dust on his head. Near the close of day, however, God came to him. God, in fact, gave him warning. This is the verse just before the one that was read a moment ago. I would ask you to note it with me too as we make ready to discuss the text before us. In verse number 10 of Joshua 7, God replies to Joshua, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Joshua, there's a time and there's a place for prayer. And there's never, of course, a reason to discount totally the idea of prayer. But prayer is not the only spiritual exercise. Prayer isn't the only exercise which will bring fruits because it's not the only exercise God has commanded. God said, Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. Sin must be purged. Otherwise, you will not go forward. You see, there was another spiritual exercise besides prayer. The sin in the camp needed to be purged. It needed to be eliminated. It needed to be removed. And thus tonight, what about sin in the camp? What happened then? Well, as that chapter unfolds, it is one that we will recall probably the most familiar scene in all the book of Joshua. In fact, in the next day, orders were given such that the people were to make themselves ready because God was going to appear in essence. And we will remember that when he did, he selected first the tribe of Judah. And from that tribe, he selected the family of Zabdi. And from that family, ultimately, the local household of Achan. When Achan was selected, Joshua appeared before him and asked him, Achan, what have you done? Achan, wherefore hast thou sinned? What hast thou done? Achan admitted what he had done. He said that in regard to those spoils from Jericho, he had not obeyed the Lord, for he had taken some of it and placed it amongst his stuff. He had taken a Babylonian garment. He had also taken an element of silver and a wedge of gold, and he even told them where he had hidden it. It was underneath his tent, well concealed. Joshua quickly dispatched others to see if indeed the story he told was correct. And when he found that it was, he assembled Israel and they stoned Achan and killed he and all of his family and destroyed all of his stuff. The sin was purged from Israel. In the very next chapter, Joshua chapter 8, they again battle Ai and this time they won with no trouble. Sin had been purged from the camp. And we noticed they were again in fellowship with God because they no longer were impure. What lessons might we learn about sin in the camp? Might I submit to you that as we think about that idea, perhaps the key thought that will lead us to the point of discussion will be this. That sin in the camp was such that God looked upon it very seriously. He did not simply ignore it. He did not simply bypass it or perhaps if you say blink at it. He gave Joshua a commandment of what to do. And Israel obeyed that which Joshua said on that account. And when the sin was purged, Israel was ready to move forward to the conquering of the, of the promised land. To rehearse all of that perhaps begs the question, what might be some things we could learn from that? Seeing how terribly God looked upon it then, what about today? Seeing in the camp? It can happen. Let's look at it from the perspective again of nations and ask, what about seeing in the camp? 
Might I submit to you that the first lesson we may learn is this one, national accountability. We hinted at that earlier at the outset of the lesson. But have you ever thought about the fact? In this instance, we have no record other than the fact that Achan was the one who sinned. No one else had. And yet all of Israel lost at the battle of Ai. Why didn't God simply allow Achan to be killed at that battle? Why didn't he allow only Achan's family to be terribly distressed? And yet all of Israel suffered because the battle was lost. We learn easily that there was a national penalty for that sin. There was a national penalty in regard to the fact that they had tolerated and allowed sin to happen. As we think verily about that point and verily about that idea, might we observe that this wasn't the only time it happened. In fact, just briefly note a few others with me. A little bit later in Old Testament history, do we not remember the scene of Habakkuk 2, verses 5 through 8? There, the particular ones who were susceptible were not the Israelites, but rather God especially made note to the prophet Habakkuk that the Chaldean nation, because they were bloody, because they were wicked, and because they were ungodly, God would punish them and they would be defeated. Ultimately, that happened. In fact, God rained upon them the terrible distress of defeat and failure, and all the while, that was something that God had said came about because they had been wicked, because they had been ungodly, and because they had veered from the pathways that God had given. That was the nation of Chaldea. What about in Amos 1.13? There, the, the prophecy similar in character was given to the nation of Ammon, A-M-M-O-N. And as that statement was made by the great prophet Amos, Especially the notice given that these Ammonites had terribly treated women. So much so that they had ripped them open and destroyed the seed that was within them. God said, I will not forget that. And upon Ammon will I rain punishment because of their wickedness. We see yet again that that nation was to suffer due to the fact that they were ungodly and that they had veered far and away aside from the truth and the power that God had desired them to know. Perhaps we can also make mention of Israel itself in Lamentations 3, verses 40 to 46. There the prophet Jeremiah freely admitted that we have sinned. We, in fact, have transgressed and God has not pardoned. The reason God hadn't pardoned is because they hadn't repented. They hadn't turned back to God, and in that state of impenitence, God would, of course, send them into Babylonian captivity for seven long decades. All of that perhaps whets our appetite and prepares us to understand better the national penalty of sin in the days of Achan. As we've seen this in Joshua to this point, may we quickly admit it really isn't any different today. When God from the great throne in heaven looks down upon nations, He, of course, demands that all men give attention to His will and His law. Some nations are closer to obedience thereto than others. In this land, we well know that our founding fathers moved in a direction in which they had appreciation for God. They had a recognition of His power and understood the fact that this nation would not long continue without His aid and without being founded upon Him. However, in 225, a little more years since, we have veered somewhat, haven't we? 
Think about those matters which we seemingly as a nation now not only tolerate but actually support. Things that are in direct opposition to the revelation of God. The two that most quickly come to mind are these. You and I in our nation have a terrible disregard for life. I say we as a nation. I know that's not you and me within the confines of this building, but we as a nation. In January of 1973, we legalized murder, and we have freely committed it ever since. Millions and millions and millions of babies have been slaughtered, slain, and apparently thought very little of it as a national conscience. It truly is something that is amazing in every regard. If a six-month-old baby were killed, no one would argue but what that person ought to be tried for that. But if it's six months before delivery, suddenly it's all right in the mind of so very many. You see, we as a nation now by and large support and legalize abortion. And time and again when it has been brought up to perhaps overturn that ruling, it's been defeated every time. But what does the Bible say? Is that life or is it not that's in the womb of that woman? Is it human life or is it not? We really have not long to think about that for the answer is in many ways obvious, isn't it? After all, what is it that's born? It's not an animal. If it's allowed to reach the termination and be born, it is a human being, and it couldn't have been anything else in the womb. But listen to what God has said on some of these points. Reflect with me all the way back to Psalm 139. As we begin reading in verse 14 of that chapter, these now are the words of the psalmist. As he's inspired, speaking the very thoughts and power of God himself, these are his remarks. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Did you notice the psalmist was describing a time when he was in his mother's womb, when as yet his members were not fully formed? And the text there informs us so interestingly and without any doubt, God was aware of that and he was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth and God had remembrance of him. But as if that isn't the only text, look with me also at Isaiah 49 verse number 1. This too in the days long since past now. But Isaiah was able to write the following words when he said, The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. From the bowels of my mother the Lord hath made mention of my name. Doesn't that indicate that God knows of and considers important and appreciable that life that's in the womb of the mother? What about Jeremiah? In Jeremiah 1, verse number 5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. It is a breathtaking thought when we recognize that God said, Jeremiah, before you were ever born, I ordained you a prophet to Israel. Before you were ever born. What does that say then when we take the life of one that isn't born yet? 
Maybe that's an instrument in the hands of the Almighty God to bring nations to His name, to bring peoples to His cause, and to preach the gospel among untold multitudes. You see, Jeremiah and Isaiah and even David made note of this fact that that which is in the womb of the mother is life recognized by God and it is murder to take it and to kill it. And yet we in this land have maintained a conscience of allowing that to occur. Shame upon us for allowing that. May we in our wisdom and our leaders turn back to the Holy Word of God and appreciate that that life that was in the womb of Mary, we recognize as Jesus, is called a babe. We understand that's just a word for baby. It wasn't called some tissue. It wasn't called a fetus. It was a baby. And let us ever appreciate then that that life is formed and have a national conscience, perhaps by our prayers toward our leaders, that they might come again to understand God's word on these points and to treasure life and not to destroy it. But yet what about another national crime? One which again we support, it would seem, and one that's gaining a greater and greater agenda, it would seem, with each passing day. That is that agenda of which we spoke a lesson about six weeks ago now, I guess it was. The matter again where we have had to have laws passed that define what marriage is. That would have been unthinkable a hundred years ago. No doubt there was a degree of homosexuality then, but it was considered a disgraceful thing and unnaturally was thus concealed or hidden. But now it's in the open. And it would seem that more and more we have individuals who have begun to think that it merely is really a choice and that there's nothing by itself evil about it. When all the while in every dispensation of time God has given his clear condemnation of it, it was so in Genesis 19 in the patriarchal age. It was so in Judges 19 in the Mosaic age. And it was so in the Christian age in Romans chapter 1. As we recognize though and see these things, there is then sin in the camp. What if the pendulum of American morality continues to swing in the wrong direction? What ultimately will happen? What happened to ancient Israel when there was sin in the camp? They were defeated today, I... And in fact, ultimately, in the Babylonian captivity, they went. Certainly, this is not to say that God tomorrow will overturn our country. There are clearly many elements of righteousness and godliness still here, but we need to permeate our influence and be also earnest and fervent in our prayers that others who are in leadership positions might come to understand and to fully employ laws and legislate elements that will produce righteousness and godliness and those things that are upheld in God's Word. Seeing in the camp is certainly a frightening thought. For in this case, in the days of Ai, it was indeed severely and quickly punished. However, think about these other things with me. Yet another lesson. In addition to the existence of national accountability, is it not also fair to say that that nation that forsakes God is very soon forsaken by Him? Perhaps that is as frightening a thought as could possibly be. That nation that turns their back on God will soon find that He turns His back on them. God desires that mutual relationship. And let us again revisit this scene in Joshua 7. A moment ago as it was read, 
We notice in verses 11 and 12 of Joshua 7, it was stated there that God testified, I am not with thee anymore. I wonder how Joshua's facial expression responded when he heard that. After all, he had grown up knowing the power and goodness and graciousness of God. He had seen it exemplified in his leader Moses. And now to hear God say, I won't be with you anymore. What if God says that to our land? I won't be with you anymore. You've chosen your own way. You've chosen the right of unrighteousness and thus I cannot abide thereby. We understand that if we had a national conscience, we'd fall on our knees and plead for whatever needs to be done to bring us back in a right relationship with Him. And thus we see that this very matter of the fact that God will forsake us if we forsake Him, that's testified all throughout the nature of the Word of God, isn't it? In recognition of the fact that God desires us to want to be with Him, but He will not force Himself on us. He doesn't force us to become Christians, but He leaves that to our choosing. He doesn't force us, say, as a congregation to remain faithful and sound and true, but that's definitely His desire, and that ought to be our choice, shouldn't it? You see, God has made us individuals of choice and nations of choice as well. We can choose to forsake Him, or we can choose to love Him and walk with Him. When we choose the latter, we will be richly blessed thereby. When we choose the former, we will be sorely, sorely punished. Do we not see the seeds of ungodliness rising and germinating and bringing forth fruit untold in our land even to this day? In many of our cities, crime seems so rampant. Individuals seemingly are shot for no reason at all. Those who commit crimes, it seems, are little punished on many occasions. There's much, in fact, that might bring a note of sadness to our hearts. Where has the justice gone? Oh, how we need to return to the old paths. Did not Jeremiah plead in Jeremiah 6.16, Thus saith the Lord. As he made that plea of thus saying the Lord, notice how he finished it. Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. The clear opposite is, if we don't seek the old paths, there will be no rest for our souls. On this earth, while we're here in the flesh, it'll be nothing but turmoil, trouble, and care. And all the while, we're told in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, that we should take the powerful attitude of praying for our leaders and those in positions that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty we're beginning to gain a deeper feeling for what it means for there to be sin in the camp. It's not a pleasant thought. It's not an easy thing to deal with, but oh, how God dealt with it swiftly and powerfully. Isn't it interesting also to notice the moral compass that God never wanted to depart from Israel? For when it did, He corrected it and swiftly at that. Notice it was very soon that He identified Achan have you ever thought about what it must have felt like to be Achan when the tribes were passed through and his tribe was selected? And then when the families were passed through and Zabdi's was selected? And finally when he was chosen? Think about the guilt that must have rested in his heart when he knew that because of his disobedience, 36 Israelite men had lost their life and the whole nation had now plunged itself into sin. 
But you see, God gave orders that he was to be stoned in the valley of Acre was the place which that happened. Did not later we read in the prophets, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. We as a nation also rest in the valley of decision. Which way will we decide? Will, uh, will we swing that moral compass back to a greater sense of rightness and godliness based upon the word of God, or will we let it swing further and further to liberality and to choose our own way? No wonder the scenes in Judges 17 to 21 are so dark and so dreary. For there we read there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When that's the description, it can't be good. For that means there's sin in the camp. But perhaps as we notice, we'll find a lesson as well in our study tonight. Notice that the situation improved dramatically when the sin was purged. When Achan and the sin that he'd committed was purged from that camp, they enjoyed victory over Ai. And furthermore, in the chapters that follow, they enjoyed victory over very many others. And ultimately, the land was conquered and they possessed at least the vast majority of it. All the while, that helps us see that when there was sin in the camp, they were beaten. When sin was purged, they were victorious. Can we not perhaps see in that a vision for ourselves in our land, in our time, and in our day? When there's sin in the camp, we will be defeated. But when that sin is purged and when it is replaced with righteousness and godly living, God will again smile upon us, bless us as richly perhaps as in days gone by. And the very thought again will be such that it will redound into our blessing, into our goodness, because the Lord is again with us. We, of course, readily note that in order for a nation to purge sin, individuals have to begin that march. Individuals must purge sin from their lives, and then, and only then, will the nation be so described. And thus, as always, the question must start with me and with you personally. When you and I tolerate sin in our heart, and we allow sin to encroach into our camp and do nothing about it, we then have sin in our personal camp, and that's not a good thing. We as a nation need to strengthen our moral consciousness. We need to strengthen the very ideas with which we make decisions of what's right and wrong. About 50 years ago now, the notion of moral relativism began, and it has increased ever since. It has now gotten very largely to where so many seem to feel that each can make his own decision about what is wrong and what is right. But Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 10.23 are as true today as they were then. As we readily recognize, it is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. You and I simply are not that wise. We're not that smart. And we certainly aren't that righteous. But with God being with us, we can make those decisions and we can purge sin from the camp. And upon that purging, we again will be the nation upon whom God can pour out the great blessings of heaven. Malachi 3 verse 8. As these thoughts are made, perhaps we might close this segment by referring to Psalm 33:12. Maybe you and I have often placed that upon the thoughts of our heart and upon the tongue of our mouth. For there it said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. There is a great blessing of all eternity and also here in the physical realm pronounced upon those nations who respect, 
honor, and in fact, seek to exalt the name of God. In fact, in Psalm 144, verse 15, in a similar way, there the prophet stated, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. National happiness will ultimately and only come when you and I submit as a nation to the great prospect and laws of the God of heaven. Sin in the camp. When Israel had to deal with it, it was a terrible and bad thing for them. They were defeated. They were beaten. They were not victorious. But once sin was eliminated and purged, they again enjoyed the favor of the God whom they cherished. Today, as our nation, as we think about the conclusion to our lesson tonight, may we reinvigorate in our heart the beauty and the power of the Word of God as the one and only moral compass, the one and only guide that's appropriate here. It not only defines what sin is, but indicates how it's to be purged, how it's to be eliminated. That should be a great comfort to us, both individually, in families, as the church, and as a nation. May we respect the wishes of those founding fathers who embedded within the Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution as well the firm reality that unless God is our leader, we will not prevail. That's as true now as they understood it to be then. Tonight, let us then determine that we will pray for our nation. We will strive to pray for our leaders that they may turn to this book and no other for the greatest of the decisions that they make, the laws they enact, the decisions that they rule in court, and the way they execute those laws. May we appreciate them when they're seen in the camp. God is not pleased. Tonight, what about the camp of your life and mine? Is there sin? If so, it needs to be eliminated and purged, and there's only one agent for it, and that's the blood of Jesus. His blood will cleanse you from sin, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. And being cleansed from that sin, you will be whole and justified in His sight, Acts 13, verse 38. If we could assist you tonight in accomplishing that task, understand that God has made all things ready and available, and you and I can participate in that even to this very night. If we could assist anyone in your public confession and baptism, we'd be honored to do that. If as well we could aid in, in praying for your forgiveness as already a child of God who has forsaken his way with Jesus, we too would be happy to help with that. If either of those is the need of your life, will you let that be made known while together we stand and while we sing?